On Monday, NASA announced the names of the first woman and the first black person to be part of a lunar crew. So today, it makes sense for us to take a look at where that journey started within NASA. Yeah, today we're talking to Meredith Bagby about her new book, The New Guys, about the 1978 class of astronauts selected by NASA for the space shuttle and the first class to include a diverse set of astronauts. Please let us know your thoughts on this episode. You can do this via our social media pages at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or via the contact form on our website. And please consider joining us over at Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash space and things. But right now, enjoy episode 137 of the Space and Things Podcast. Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles. And how are you doing, Emily? I'm doing good. Uh, I've been a little under the weather this week, but other than that, uh, I'm in pretty high spirits because as we just said in our intro, NASA has selected the first African-American astronaut and the first woman astronaut to go to the moon, which I feel like I've been waiting for this moment my whole life, uh, and I'm 45, so I'm pretty excited. Yesterday, I was very emotional for much of the day, so it was really, it's really cool. It's it's kind of like, uh, I'm really happy, but at the same time, I can't believe it's taken this long. <laughs> yeah. You know? You say you've been waiting for your whole life, as we're about to talk about 45 years ago was when we got the first set of diverse astronauts from NASA. So you really have been waiting for this moment all of your life. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of come full circle because, you know, 45 years ago, we we were selecting the first or we were NASA, you know, selected the first diverse class of astronauts, which was, you know, an amazing milestone. And I feel like it's crazy to me. It's taken 45 years to select the first African-American man and the first woman to go to the moon i mean that's just it's a long time coming that's all i gotta say yeah i wonder if back then they'd had the conversation about when nasa would go back to the moon whether they thought it would be 45 years before that announcement but that's probably for a whole nother podcast we are about to talk about the space shuttle again and emily had an article which we forgot to talk about last week i wrote down to talk about it but i completely forgot and i apologize a great article that you wrote about the enterprise flight simulator which is on your medium and your nss blog i believe yep you are correct what was the inspiration behind writing that one this time well i saw a picture some years ago and it's on fred hayes's website i think it's fredhayes.space if you go visit it there's a picture of him at the um orbiter aero flight simulator and i was like I'd never heard that phrase before. And I was like, I've heard of simulators, but I'd never, I'd heard of the fixed base and the motion based simulator, right? That were in Houston, I think building five, but I'd never heard of the OAS. So I'm like, what is that? Turns out the OAS was the simulator that was supposed to simulate enterprise conditions because enterprise wasn't going to space. Okay. Once they were done with it, you know, when Enterprise, the Enterprise approach and landing test flights were done, they converted it into a, a space simulator for like, you know, Columbia and other uh, space missions, which is really cool because you figure, I mean, that's two completely different, you know, Earth and then you go to space. 
that's really cool that they were able to do that in the 70s, you know, with yeah. software and things like that, you know, because if you want to simulate space, you ha- you have to have a computer basically saying, okay, we're in space. You yeah. Know? <laughs> that's, right? Yeah, we're not on Earth. So um, I was like, man, I really want to dig into that. That's cool. You know, I, I didn't know uh, it makes sense, but I didn't know that they had to sort of, you know, make a enterprise type configuration and then they had to modify it for the orbital missions. I thought that was really cool and I wanted to dig a little deeper into it. Not a lot of documentation available um, on the uh, NASA technical report server and uh, other places on the Internet. Uh, I looked through a few books and I couldn't find anything as well. So it's I didn't just go to the Internet, but um, I was very fascinated at how they had to sort of simulate Enterprise and simulate those conditions of, OK, we got to land this brick on Earth. And, and, and some of the things that they had to go through, you know, to basically make that happen you know and i i don't know i'm an enterprise freak obviously and i i we have a previous episode of space and things where we talked to fred hayes about enterprise and he talked a little bit about some of the things that i wrote about in the article so i wish somebody would just do an enterprise book i i i really do would you do it if i can find time uh, i would love to do it if somebody else is working on one i don't want to take it from them yeah, but yeah, if there is nothing out there and nobody else is doing it yes i would love to write an enterprise book it would just be hard because i'm sure a lot of people want a very technical book and i don't necessarily want to make it technical i want to make it yeah. about you know okay um we have to develop this new brand new flying space vehicle how do we land it <laughs> you know <laughs> what are the people who came together to make that piece happen you know and what were the what were the pressures sort of writing on them so i will put a link to that article in the show notes as always so check it out if you haven't already anyway let's crack on with this week's main feature over to you emily on january 16th 1978 nasa announced the eighth group of astronauts these were the first group to be selected specifically for the space shuttle and featured 35 people At this time, NASA was trying to diversify the astronaut corps, which had been the realm of white men until this announcement. Among the 35 astronauts named were included six women, three African-American men, and one Asian-American male. The group were known as 35 New Guys, which is often shortened to TFNG, which if you've read Mike Mullane's book Riding Rockets, you'll find out that there may be an alternative title for those initials. Anyway, the group held plenty of records. First American woman in space, first African American in space, first American woman to perform an EVA, first mother in space, first Asian American in space, first African American to pilot and command a mission, first American to launch on a Russian rocket. First American woman to make a long duration spaceflight. First army astronaut to name just a few. All 35 of them flew in space at least once. And in total, the group flew 103 missions totaling over 891 days in space. And the person with the most time in space was Shannon Lucid, with 223 days in space over her five trips. The last flight by any member of the group was by Steve Hawley on STS-93 in July 1999. Anna Fisher was the last of the group to continue to work at NASA, retiring in April 2017. She was on the selection board for the group 20 astronauts who were announced in 2009 and that was the first group to be named since 1978 who would not fly on the space shuttle so full circle there 
On Monday, NASA announced the first crew that will travel to the moon as part of the Artemis program. It included Christina Cook and Victor Glover. NASA's path to having an astronaut office, which accurately represents the population, is definitely headed in the right direction. Yep. And so today we talked to Meredith Bagby, who has just released a brand new book about the 1978 astronaut class. It's called The New Guys. And Emily has already written a review about this, which we will put in the show notes. But right now, let's talk to the author and find out all about it. For fun Skylab bingo and a Texas barbecue, you're listening to the Space and Things podcast. Hello, Meredith. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'd just been on Twitter before we press record and saw that Kevin Bacon has been reading your book. So thank you for finding the time to spend with us mere mortals. I guess now you've completed <laughs> the Kevin Bacon game, which must have been a, a life ambition of yours. I know it is of mine. Anyway, uh, first of Space and Things, we love a good scene setter. So what initially prompted you to write about the TFNGs, the 1978 astronaut group? Sure. First of all, thanks for having me. I'm super happy to be on and talking to your listeners. And um, it's been a long process. Actually, uh, my interest in space started when I was a kid. My fifth grade teacher applied to be the teacher in space. Of course, Christy McAuliffe won. This was 1986. But he introduced during that year where he was competing to be the teacher in space for NASA, he introduced us to all things NASA. And we went to the Cape. When he lost and Krista won, we followed the flight. And of course, we were one of the millions of children who were watching that flight live and watched the Challenger explode. And that's just stayed with me forever. And then when I became a writer, I came upon this story of a Challenger from a different perspective. And that was who else was on that flight. And it turned out that four of the people who died on that flight uh, were from this historic class of 1978, which for the first time included women and people of color. And, you know, that was a story I really wanted to tell. So the TFNGs were really the first diverse astronaut class. You know, it boasted women, African-American and an Asian-American astronaut. Two of the heroes in the book really couldn't have more different origin stories like uh, Nichelle Nichols and George Abbey who emerged from television and NASA's bureaucracy, respectively, to innovate the astronaut selection process. Which other diversity champions emerged from that time that you think may be uh, less discussed? Well, I think Ron McNair comes to mind. Uh, he was, uh, of course, part of the class in 1978. And as a youth, grew up in the segregated South, Lake City, South Carolina. And uh, on the weekends and on his time off, he picked cotton with his brother to make ends meet uh, from a very impoverished background, but used education to work his way out of that environment and to MIT and then on to NASA to become the second African-American in space. Of course, he tragically died on the Challenger and his career was cut short, but truly a hero for a a lot of uh, young men. And I'm thinking also of Ellison Onizuko, who was the first Asian-American, actually the first Asian person, I think, who went to space um, from Hawaii and from Japanese background, uh, of sort of saw a lot of his community interred during World War II uh, when that happened to Japanese Americans and uh, also came from an impoverished background. His parents ran a grocery store and really had to struggle to make ends meet when he was growing up. So, but, and then went on to become the first, you know, Asian American to space also tragically died in Challenger, unfortunately, but those are just some of the many 
people that I got to write about and um, very inspiring. We had a question from one of our Patreon subscribers, Gillian Cassie, who has asked a question which I think really fits in here. Was there any cultural clash within the group itself? And did the group try and present as a united front despite any internal differences they may have had? I think it's a great question. I think when they first arrived, there was plenty of culture clash. And I think of all of the, you know, about half the class, a little more than half the class were still pilots. And uh, there were test pilots from military backgrounds. Most of them had been, had fought in Vietnam. And a lot of the civilian scientists had protested Vietnam. They were coming at things from a very different angle. And I think the military pilots also were, you know, had dreamed of becoming astronauts since they were little boys and they were boys. They were all boys, uh, men. And meanwhile, the civilians were, some of them had never thought of becoming astronauts in part because it wasn't a possibility for them. And so they were coming to this uh, new and a lot of people, Mike Mullane famously writes in Writing Rockets, uh, that the, he didn't think that the, the, the lot of them would cut it, and especially the women. He wasn't used to working with women. And I think he was um, brave in writing all of the trepidations he had, and he got over them. As this class moved through the system, they became, you know, uh, gelled, and they became friends. A lot of them became lovers, <laughs> of, you know, and rivals, some of them, but they really gelled as a class and uh, moved through the system. And I think... All of them, what's great about this class is all of them flew, none of them flunked out. Uh, they all survived training and they all went on to fly the space shuttle. And so it was a big success at the end of the day. Absolutely. I have a, a follow up also from Jillian, which is, is kind of slightly different, but it's about that group unity. So, who was it who first came up with the term TFNG? And obviously, it has a slightly derogatory nature uh, it, with a military sense that that name did the group use that as a badge of pride within the national office I, that's a great question i've never been able to i nobody's ever taken credit for coming up with <laughs> that name but it makes perfect sense in the sense that you've got this new group of people a lot of them civilians coming in they're all rookies and there are these old guys who have either been in apollo or they've been waiting to fly. They're probably pretty cranky because the shuttle hasn't gotten off uh, the launch pad yet. They're dying for a shot. And now these rookies come in and it's like those effing new guys, uh, which is again, a you know, military term, but it's stuck. And then they wore that badge very proudly. I'm actually wearing my, I don't know if you can see it, but I'm wearing my TFNG shirt. Nice. <laughs> which which was designed by Judy Resnick, and their tagline was "We Deliver," which has to do with the work they did on the shuttle in delivering satellites and payloads. And uh, yeah, I think they very proudly wore <laughs> wore their badge, very proudly. So the TFNG's vehicle, the, the space shuttle, was incredible but flawed. Another hero who really emerges in the book is John Fabian, who perhaps was one of the first program whistleblowers. Uh, however, he ended up. You know, he left the program and uh, the Challenger tragedy and aftermath. Really, they both serve as the centerpiece of the book. Did any other astronauts communicate their anxieties about the program to you while you were interviewing them? That's a terrific question. I think it, it's really interesting. It's a really interesting question, too, because I think it breaks down into people who were more technical and pilots and people who are more technical and and then the scientists. And they had a differing perspective based on what they understood of the danger and the risk. I think 
in some ways, the scientist astronauts, the doctors and the astronomers were more trusting because they didn't fully comprehend how the vehicle worked, quite honestly. And But the people who were pilots and had flown test vehicles before were much more likely to identify the risk ahead of time. And because they had lived and worked in those high-risk environments before, I think it wasn't until after Challenger that the scientists uh, and the mission specialists really understood the danger that they faced. Now, there are some exceptions to that. As an example, Judy Resnick's first flight, an engine exploded on the pad, and she was very aware, um, having almost burnt to death during that explosion, that there was great danger. And I think that at that point, as we're moving further and closer to Challenger in 86, that people are starting to see those accidents and they're starting to kind of start to understand what the real danger is. But but to your question, I think it, it was very dependent on what people's technical skills were in terms of what they really understood. So by the 1990s, uh, several TFNG astronauts were still out there breaking records, including Shannon Lucid during the Shuttle Mir program. Why do you think the TFNG astronauts possess such endurance and longevity? What was great about the TFNG astronauts was that they were there at the beginning, the ground floor of the shuttle program. And the shuttle being an experimental vehicle, they really had to bootstrap the program into existence. Uh, they were entrepreneurial. They had a lot of grit. And that grit, I think, carried on throughout the program, even during some of the program's biggest tragedies. Uh, most of them came back after Challenger. Many were still left at Columbia when Columbia happened in 2003. Some of them uh, spanned the entire length of the shuttle program. And I think that has to do with the fact that these were people that really, I, George Abbey, who who chose them, chose people who were really in love and with um, the idea of going to space and exploration. And he chose people that had a lot of grit that were willing to roll up their sleeves and make something work. And at the beginning, there was a lot of doubt about whether or not the shuttle would work. And they helped bootstrap that program into existence. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got another question from one of our Patreon subscribers. It's actually in two parts. And this is from John Wisenhunt. You kind of touched on this earlier with with the answer to, to one of the others. But he says... Um, what did you find was the biggest source of friction between the old guard astronauts and the new guys? And did any of the astronauts you speak, speak to have any favorite mentors from the previous classes? I think everybody loved Bob Crippen and uh, John Young. I think, you know, they were, of course, the uh, the ones that piloted STS-1, the first space shuttle. They were there. Um, of course, John Young was the old man of the astronaut office, having to having flown to space quite a few times. And uh, Bob Crippen was the rookie everybody was cheering for. They were hoping that he got a shot, which, of course, he did in STS-1. He also uh, went up with um, Sally Ride. He was her um, commander. And as such, he was very protective of her as being the first woman and helped her handle the press when it got tough. So I think he he comes across as somebody who was very important. Um, I think obviously John Young, who is the old man who was head of the astronaut office at the time, also very important. And um, if you look back at sort of the Challenger era, he was one of the people who early on flagged a lot of the dangers of the space shuttle and wrote endless memos to um, 
the administrators about the dangers they faced. And so I think he comes off as quite a hero uh, to a lot of them. So th they really stand out to me as as people who are important to the TFNGs and forming their outlook on space travel. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest source of friction between the old guard and the, and the new guys probably had to do with the way astronauts were selected for crews. And largely that decision lay in the hands of George Abbey, who had selected them. And I think as part of the way NASA evolved, that crew selection was a mysterious process. It wasn't something that was shared with the astronauts themselves. And this group of astronauts, they were all type A. They all liked control. And I think they all wanted to be first on some level. And by first, I mean first to fly, first woman in space, first or first American woman in space, first African-American in space. Those things, those titles ended up being important. And they were not let in on the process of how they were going to be chosen. I think it was very frustrating for a lot of them and caused a fair amount of consternation. And still, to this day, causes some agita, honestly, about, about what happened and why people were chosen when. What is your favorite story from the group? And are there any good stories from the outpost that didn't make it to the quite make it to the book? Uh, I know it's he's not a TFNG, but the Joe Ingalls story about him playing the organ in there is pretty hysterical. Oh man, my favorite stories. I think I first sort of fell in love with this group of people when I heard about their stories of rabble rousing uh, during their early astronaut days. And I loved Anna's, some of Anna Fisher's stories about what it was like to take those T-38s out and to fly all across the country. And I love the story of them getting drunk in Seattle and then going the next morning and flying uh, at Boeing. And then, you know, Anna gets in the cockpit and she's sort of hung over and she flies for the first time. <laughs> she yeah. flies and she doesn't tell anybody, hey, this is my first time. You know, she flew and landed and that was that. And, you know, once I think the, the, uh, they realized the Boeing, uh, the Boeing pilot realized that this was her first landing, he really, he turned white. You know, he was, he was terrified. And then I love the stories of them. They did tell me, I didn't put a, put it all in, but all of the dangerous things they did with T-38s, like flying upside down over the Gulf of Mexico, <laughs> was a favorite story that Fred Gregory told me. He's like, but I never did that in real life. <laughs> <laughs> but he would do it just, they would do it, some of the pilots would do it to shake up the new guy, the new civilians, and just say, you know, isn't this fun? And this is what you're in for. Do you have any plans for any other space books? Or... Are you hoping to turn this one into a film? I know you have a film and TV background and your production company, and I imagine that film about 35 people plus other characters would be hard to do with the sheer amount of characters, but your book tells that through a handful of them. When you started, did you have film and TV in mind? I know there's a few things in there, but I wonder whether you did or not. I absolutely did. I thought this would make a terrific TV show. And I actually, I wrote it up as a TV show before I wrote it up as a book. And um, I realized I had so much information that there, and there wasn't enough IP uh, original material to, to create a full TV show. So that's why oh, wow. I ended up writing this book. The truth is, yes, we have uh, plans to turn it into a TV show. And I hope that that happens sooner rather than later. Um, we're working on the pitch as we speak. That's my, <laughs> that's my next assignment this afternoon. And I think it's, it most likely will be a limited series. I think that's probably what we're going to try to try to sell. And then I am working on another uh, space book and it has to do with uh, the upcoming space race that may be forming between the U.S. and China. 
if there's a, a, a limited series from this book, I am going to be addicted. I'm going to be excited. I've always felt that the shuttle program needed like its own TV show. Oh, good. Well, we're excited too. We hope we hope the uh, the network executives agree with you. Yes, I think it'd be awesome. It, the shuttle program needs a, its own from the Earth to the Moon. It needs something like that. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Really does. Well, thank you, Meredith, for joining us. Really enjoyed talking to you. And and I know Emily's finished the book. I'm halfway through it. It's amazing. And I know Emily's I written a re- review about it. So thank you so much for doing this. And we wish you all the best. We're, we're trying to get the TV thing done and, and hopefully your next book as well. So uh, when that's finished, feel free to come back and t- tell us all about that as well. Oh, I will. Yeah. I, you know, I will. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. No worries. Thank you. This is what space enthusiasm sounds like. You're listening to the Space and Things podcast. That was really exciting. Yeah, I love the book. It, it discusses the whole class, but it sort of focuses in on a few people's like specific stories and and how they sort of grew. You know, they grew not only as an astronaut, but as people throughout mm. the decades. And I really love that. You know, I think that's really cool how she approached that. Yeah. Do you know what? I really agree with what you said during the interview about the TV show, how we need it. I think it's really important. There's just so much to it already, isn't there? I mean, of course, it's the excitement, as you said, about this brand new vehicle and new people, civilians flying, all those kind of things, seeing space through new prism and new type of people going, uh, opening up to new people. But obviously, as we know, it's got the disaster. It's got the heartbreak. But yeah. it, there's also the personal stories within there too, away from the space flight itself. It's all there, isn't it? It's all there. And you could see how it would work within a TV show. And the danger, I think, at the moment with the shuttle is that it's becoming uncool. Do, do you agree with that? Like, yeah. Because of what commercial space flights now become, because... Obviously, that's opening doors in the way the shuttle perhaps should have done, but didn't because it didn't get the budget it should have done to be able to fulfill that part of the bargain. The danger is it just gets looked at at the old way of going to space. And because it didn't land on the moon, because it didn't necessarily win a space race or anything like that, it can get painted as almost unsexy or just not as cool, even though it was such a huge program and hugely successful program obviously some horrific things happening as well but it was hugely successful and we owe it so much i'm sure you've got a load i'm sure i yeah. could fill a whole episode with your opinions on this oh yeah i can see why people look at the shuttle this way because the shuttle did have two terrible yeah. accidents and countless little things that happened with it you know because it was it was a very experimental vehicle you know, it was something that was not flown before its test flight that had two people on it. My concern is that its milestones and it, that its genuine accomplishments are going to be eclipsed by, you know, the fact that it was not a perfect mode of space travel. And not to gloss over the shuttle's drawbacks as a space vehicle, but any space vehicle is not 100% safe. Yeah. I can't speak for them, obviously, but I think the people who lost their lives on the shuttle would agree that the risk is worth taking for the to explore space. I, I think that they would agree to that, but my concern is that the history and the accomplishments will be overshadowed by the real issues with it, which 
like I said, we shouldn't gloss over it, but at the same time, there were some amazing things it did. I think it's a it's a really interesting time for shuttle people and people who like the shuttle because they're having to almost fight those battles with people, just people forgetting that it existed or people mis- miscrediting it for things as well. Like there's, there's so much. There was there was a t-shirt at the a really ill-informed T-shirt at Houston Space Center. Yes, I'm going to have another moan about Houston Space Center. <laughs> oh, no. It was a picture of the shuttle or an image of the shuttle next to the quote, failure is not an option. You'd think someone somewhere would have gone, maybe not that quote next to a shuttle. But there's a danger that it gets lumped in with other things or that it just kind of gets glossed over. I mean, it's amazing how many people, when they talk about modern spacecraft, they're called space shuttles. Everything's like you speak to someone who's perhaps not into space that much. They go, oh, when's the next space shuttle launch? And they mean the next Dragon or the next Soyuz craft. But shuttle has become the term for things that go to space for so many people because the shuttle was it for so long all, all the, the the majority of people saw for so long it was called a space shuttle in the majority of their life so why would that not be called the space shuttle but it's certainly an interesting time isn't it just to be excited to want to be excited about the space shuttle it's quite tough yeah and to make a case for the space shuttle because we are in the commercial industry you know the sort of commercial space industry now obviously it's flying a lot more missions we got spacex we got all the commercial vendors and stuff and they're doing amazing things we tend to look at nasa the space shuttle through this eyes of well it had the potential to do stuff like that but it just never did i'll be honest i even look through it through that lens sometimes because there's things that nasa did during that time where i'm like why did they do that they could have done it differently but i still think it's an incredible vehicle i still think it deserves a lot of credit. It did some incredible things. I mean, to me, honestly, if the shuttle had only flown Hubble, then it would have been worth it. I mean, we've seen the universe in ways that we couldn't imagine 40, 50 years ago. And I mean, you know, to me, that's worth the, it. The whole of the servicing nature of Hubble as well, I think, is one of the things which yep. gives the shuttle so much value, not just in terms of Hubble, but the lessons learned through... Yep. Hubble and other like similar spacecraft, NASA learned how to truly work in space because of the space shuttle, mm-hmm. the tools required, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, all those kind of things, all the little tricks. Yes, some of that was developed earlier through Gemini, Apollo, so on and so forth. But they really got to grips with it during the space shuttle, and oh, yeah. that can't be undervalued. How much you now look at what we now do at the space station and going forward and how much they learn, the practices learned, the practices perfected through the shuttle period. If you read Catherine Sullivan's book, you should talk about the difference between what they were doing for that first Hubble mission compared to what they eventually did on the final repair mission and how the things they ended up being able to do, you couldn't even have imagined that when they first started. You know, they really perfected it. It's not sexy, though, is it? There's no sexy in, oh, yeah, do you know what? We got really yeah. good with building space hammers and wrenches and tools. Like, It's just not sexy, is it? It's not as sexy to people as, hey, I walked on the moon or, hey, I drove a car yeah. on the moon. Exactly. Or something exactly. like that, you know. That to people is yeah, like, yeah. what? Which is why one of the enduring image, images of the shuttle era is Bruce McCandless, untethered 
flight because that's yes. sexy. <laughs> the idea yeah, exactly. of being out there on sexy. your own floating around is like, whoa, that's nuts. Yeah. And that's yeah. why that's such an enduring image. And it's a shame we didn't see more of that. But, you know, that's a whole whole other episode we've kind of done. That's a whole other episode. Yeah, that's the man. That's the man maneuvering unit episode extravaganza. So yeah. Okay, I quickly want to touch on this as well. This is another question from our Patreon, Jillian. Thank you for all your questions, Jillian. This is one I thought that Emily and I could discuss. And in the light of what's happened this week, I think it's very important. Do you think there are still barriers within NASA for minorities, women, and LGBTQ plus individuals? Oh, yeah. I think they've gotten better about it, but I think women, minorities, when I say minorities, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, et cetera, people of color, and gays are not probably not very represented, not as well represented as as men in the astronaut corps, if that's what she's asking. Uh, if you look at the last mission, I think Crew 6, it was all guys, and... I'm not saying they weren't qualified to fly that mission, but, you know, I look at that and I think, well, dang, it's been 30. No, it's been 40 years since Sally Ride flew into space and we still have issues getting, you know, getting women aboard a space flight. You know, we still have all male space flights, you know, which to me is kind of like we could probably do a little better than that. There's only been one African-American woman to the ISS. I think that's crazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, that just does not make sense. We've never had an openly gay astronaut, yeah. ever. Yeah, for me, that's the big area which still needs to be addressed. We've spoken about this before, but Francis French wrote a wonderful article about the history of homosexuality in space, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It is a must-read. Sally Ride outed herself only the day she died in 2012. Anne McLean, who is one of the current astronaut corps, is a lesbian. However, she was outed rather unfairly while she was on the ISS. Every individual should control the narrative of their sexuality. And to have that taken away when you're not even on the planet was incredibly cruel. And I hope that NASA really helped her through that. There may well be other astronauts past or present who are gay who, who, who are not out. And if they don't want to be, that's fine. But Probably we probably need to discuss whether there are reasons why they haven't come out. If it's simply, well, it's none of your business, well, that's of course fine. But if it's because they don't want to have to face their colleagues or their bosses or the media or the world, then actually that's a problem that probably needs addressing and discussing. How you do that when someone does want to come out, I don't know, don't have the answer to that, but it certainly would be a problem. We've yet to have someone announced as an astronaut who is publicly out. And I think that would have a huge impact on young people who are realising about their sexuality and who are also people who want to be astronauts. Are they looking at the current astronaut court and saying, they don't want people like me? Because they might be feeling that. In my opinion, it really matters to see some vis visibility. It does. Yeah. It does. Now, I know there will be people who say, I just want the best qualified people to be astronauts. I don't care what their sexuality, skin colour, gender or religion is. And of course, that's right. We shouldn't care about any of those things. But while we've lived yeah. in a world where in recent history, those who are straight white men have had to fight extra yeah. hard for the same right to even be legal or for the same opportunities to education or to vote, to making sure that we include all people is important. And if that means it's a little bit harder for straight white men yep. who are qualified to get picked for that bit, then so be it. Because 
for the numbers of people applying for these positions, there are enough people who aren't straight white men who are just as qualified who can fill those roles. Exactly, yeah. Now, we haven't even mentioned transgender people, the T in LGBTQ+, who are currently the subject of a huge cultural war, which is just grossly unfair. I can't imagine what it's like being a trans per- transgender person right now. I can't even put myself in, in your shoes and try and understand how it must feel to turn on the internet or the news every day and see that your community is being targeted by so much hate. And that has never been a transgender astronaut. And this could be something, this would be a huge thing for that community and it's something that the space community should try and make happen, either through a private flight or with one of the space agencies. Spaceflight is in a unique position to help force positive change into the world by including as diverse a group of people in one of the most visible signs of what a high-achieving person can be, an astronaut. Exactly. I, I think that's what we need to do. I think spaceflight needs to be inclusive enough that we're like, hey, we welcome anybody here. We want to make you feel safe. We want to make you feel like you can enjoy this too. You don't have to be a any particular kind of person to like this. You don't have to be um, the archetypical astronaut type person from 60 years ago. I don't know. As Nichelle Nichols said, this is your NASA. Yeah. That's what it should be like. Absolutely. And, you know, I used to really struggle with the idea of there being quotas, but I think it's for something like NASA, I think it's important to have at the top tier, which is astronauts, was the most visible thing. I think it's important. Yeah, the most public. It's so important. And that's what was so good about the new guys. That was what was so positive about it in the 70s, bringing it back around. That was why it was such a huge moment when they had that press conference in January 1978. That was such a huge moment. I would love to have been in the room. I would love to have felt that energy. I would have loved to have been a young woman or a young black person watching that press conference or seeing that announcement or seeing that get announced and and going, oh, hang on a moment. That's me. I can do this. Um, which wouldn't have happened up until that point if you were following the space program. And and we're still not there, in my opinion. So much better, so much better. Oh, yeah, we're a little closer, but we're not 100% there yet. I totally agree. I'm hoping in 50 more years, 45 more years, hopefully I'll I'll still be around by then. We, you know, it's gotten even better and we can say, okay, we've seen in true equality, I guess, in space flight. I hope, I hope. Me too. We'll see. Me too. (laughs) Anyway, as always, you can check out the full unedited interview on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash space and things. When you were a little girl growing up in Akron, Ohio, did you say, gee, I'd like to be an astronaut someday? No, I really didn't think about it until about four years ago when NASA announced that they were looking for astronauts who would be uh, engineers and scientists on the space shuttle. And it was accidental that I heard about it, and I just took a chance and applied. So, Emily, what's caught your eye in spaceflight since last week? Okay, uh, obviously yesterday was the Artemis announcement of, of the first Artemis astronauts. It did include... Um, the first, obviously, as we have previously stated on this episode, the first woman, uh, Christina Cook, and the first African-American, uh, Victor Glover, who will be going to deep space. But it also has the first Canadian astronaut to go to the moon. 
and that's going to be, I believe, Jeremy Hansen. Uh, I, I honestly did not have it on my on my bingo card in the last year that a Canadian would go to the moon. That did you not know really, that? I thought that was that. I thought people knew that that was a part of the mission. I I knew they were going to send an international astronaut. Honestly. Right. Um, I hate to say it, I didn't know it was going to be Canadian. I I, right. I assumed very incorrectly it would be European, but I guess the European is going to go on the next one, which would be Artemis 3. But um, I think one of the real MVPs at yesterday's announcement was the guy from Canada who was oh, there to was help. Oh, he was great, yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to look him up because I was like, who is this dude? Like, this dude had, if you go and watch the, uh, before the announcement, this guy had so much energy. Like, it was like, Who's this rock star coming up here and hyping the audience up, you know? So I looked him up, and his name is, uh, he has a title. He's a, a MP, the Honorable Francois Philippe Champagne. His name is Champagne, which is kind of awesome. Um, yeah. He is the Minister of Innovation, Science, and Industry, and represents the writing of St. Maurice Champlain. He's actually a Canadian government official, Similar to how in the United States we have people on like different committees and boards that are on science or space committees and things like that. So anyway, that guy really stood in my mind. He was like a friggin' rock star. So I read another article actually today. It discusses how, you know, the Artemis 2 is really going to champion Canadian space companies. We're going to see, uh, obviously, uh, Canada Arm 3 on the Gateway space station, uh, obviously we had Canada Arm on the space shuttle, and we also have it. Uh, we have its, uh, I guess, ancestor on the ISS. So yeah. we still have the Canada Arm on the ISS now. It's its cousin or, or nephew or something like that. <laughs> but um, I thought this was a really cool quote from the article from Space.com. It was written by Elizabeth Howell, who is Canadian. Who is Canadian? Ah, I did not know that, but. She asked, you know, you've held many offices related to the CSA, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister of Infrastructure and Communities, and Minister of International Trade. Now you're CSA's minister. Where do you see its role in government? This is a really cool answer. He said, the president of the United States said it best when he said Canada and the United States can do big things because we do them together. So yes, the CSA brings all the portfolios together. That's the aspect of the space economy or aspects that will benefit communities in the Arctic with health and nutrition and harsh environments. That's really cool. I didn't think about that. He also added, the CSA brings in the foreign affairs portfolio because with our American friends, we're going to be building Canada Arm 3 to maintain the gateway station. So it's kind of full circle for me, and I think that's pretty exciting. I hope Canadians will be proud to see our astronauts blasting off and going to the moon. So... I think that's very cool. Congratulations to all of our Canadian friends who will see a Canadian going to the moon. I hope we bring something up there to represent Canada. Like, I don't know. Uh, now I'm going to get in trouble. Like, I don't know, maple syrup or or bear toys or the littlest hobo <laughs> toy. I don't know. Uh, the littlest hobo, for those of you who don't know, that was a, kid sh a Canadian kids show that regularly traumatized me during the 80s because he was a German shepherd who didn't have a home. But seriously, though, congratulations, and that's awesome, and I cannot wait to see uh, them orbiting the moon in about a, hopefully, 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 about 18 months to two years' time. Yeah, I think there's a there's a joke I saw that, that um, said that the Canadians got the, um, got the seat because they promised to bring potato salad along to the moon. Uh, 
They promised to bring Canadian bacon or back bacon or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I like, uh, what's interesting is Jeremy Hansen is is a rookie as well. And he's actually been an astronaut for 14 years, but hasn't, this will be his first flight. And uh, what a first flight. We've been waiting for 14 years and you, your first flight, you get to go to the moon. That's pretty cool. Good for him. Yeah. And it's sad. And I'll just say this as an aside. I, I've actually seen people on social media who are like, who seem jealous, you know, of the people going to the moon and stuff. And I'm like, you know, these are very highly trained people who've been working their whole lives to do this. You know, I mean, yeah, would I love to go? Hell yeah, I would. But I'm not in. I'm not remotely qualified to do that. And I'm aware of that. So I have nothing but love for them. And I'm very happy for them. And I wish other people could look at it the same way. That's all. Me too. Me too. I think it's a, it looks like a great crew. I don't know too much about two of them. Two of them I followed a little bit more than the other two, uh, but I look forward to getting to know them more over the next year and a half, at least before their launch. I thought that I thought the announcement yesterday was both wonderful and horrific, and it may be that I'm British that I had that uh, that <laughs> the press conference. No, I'm not. I'm not in- the crew announcement. The crew announcement uh, is great. I'm happy with the crew, but but the the event itself was. Uh, I, I loved the fact that they had the whole astronaut office there because when do we ever see that? That's great. I yeah. felt that we waited what half hour before we heard from a single member of the crew that were going. Uh, to the oh. point where I was like, are we going to hear from them at all? What's going on here? It was just really weird. And then we did hear from them and it was like, great, okay, cool. I hope we get good access to these people and we really get to know them before they go. We've all got this, we've got all this time. So getting to know them would be wonderful. So we can be even more invested in what's happening. Similar to the uh, Inspiration 4 mission where I personally was so invested because there'd been a documentary about the four of them. Uh, I get that these people are doing a job and that their personal lives have nothing to do with me, but when you sign up to be an astronaut, I think you need to be willing to share your story at least, uh, as I think that really can help to inspire people. And that's what these missions are all about, right? And, and, well, for me, they are. Uh, so, yeah, maybe maybe a documentary. Anyway, let's let's learn more about them. Let's really get to know them so that the enthusiasm of those of us who are already into this stuff can get so much that those who don't know anything about Artemis just get caught along and swept along with the ride uh, and be as excited as we are. One thing about yesterday which annoyed me was that every single member of NASA's management structure seemed to want to say something before the announcement. And they all seem to say the same thing. And also the slogans, the whole we're going thing, which was kind of cool when they first did it six months ago, whenever it was. If that's going to be all we get for two years, and it's getting really boring... (laughs) I appreciate this might be a very British perspective and potentially I'm about to contradict myself, but I was thinking about back to the Apollo days and the crew announcement press conferences that used to happen and it wasn't anywhere near as hyped. Maybe we just need to be somewhere in the middle because too much hype and it's almost like looks forced and insincere. We know you're going to the moon, be excited, but don't overdo it. I just, just wanted to hear from the crew and get to know them. The rest of them need to get out of the way and stop making it about about themselves. I guess that's the politician thing, though, right? So there were too many people yesterday on stage who yeah who weren't really probably involved yeah who are yeah who are political (laughs) appointment on management. I don't care. I don't care about you. Give me the astronauts. Yeah, I was kind of like, man, why is it taking half an hour to get to the announcement? Yeah, just get to it. And I felt impatient. I felt bad because part of it was, well, I have a meeting. 
come on. Yeah, 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 of course. Of course. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I felt bad because I'm like, oh, they're not working on my schedule, you know, but still I was sort of like, man, it has taken a while yeah. for them to get to this, you know, that's nuts. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, it's great that we now have the crew. I'm intrigued as to how NASA are going to manage this on a PR level. It's a long time before the mission, but here we are. Elsewhere, the crewed Boeing Starliner spacecraft launch has been put back to July 21st. It will be the first time that that craft has had a crew on board, and it's long overdue, but I never mind delays when there's a crew involved. We also talked last week about the fact that Virgin Orbit was having difficulties. Well, the financial package I was talking about fell through, and looks like that's the end of Virgin Orbit as they've filed for bankruptcy. I don't know what that means for Virgin Galactic, which is a different company, and that's the one where uh, that has the crewed flights. But we'll see what happens there. Starship might have its first orbital test launch in the next few weeks, so could be a, a big week for SpaceX. Looking forward to that. And finally, former astronaut Doug Hurley, one of our favourites, is taking part in a wonderful and rather comedic campaign with Bushlight for their Earth Month campaign. The idea being that we need to save the world so that beer doesn't disappear. Anyway, awesome. I'll post the video for that in the show notes. Streaming the titans of space history and giving voice to all cosmic explorers, this is the Space and Thanks podcast. All right, that's it for this week. Big thank you to Wizzo, our Patreon, for his stings this week. Amazing work, John. Thank you very, very much. Also, thank you to Alyssa and Louie, who both joined our Patreon page this month. You're absolute legends. Thank you very much. We're just starting a new monthly feature in there. So for those of you who are in there already, check out the post I put there on Tuesday. If you would like to join head over to patreon.com forward slash space and things. And don't forget to share the podcast with your friends. Thanks to Don Irwin for a lovely shout out in Mm -hmm. Space Hipsters this week. That was very kind of you. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you need. This has been the Space and Thanks podcast with Emily Carney and Dave Giles.